let us read together in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 7. Israel, remember this, the Lord and the Lord alone is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Never forget these commands that I am giving you today. Teach them to your children. Repeat them when you are at home and when you are away, when you are resting and when you are working. Our second reading is First Peter. Chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. But have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honour him as Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are insulted, those who speak evil of your good conduct as followers of Christ will be ashamed of what they say. Thank you. You know, sometimes the best way to introduce a speaker is to put them on the spot. (laughs) Christine is looking surprised now (laughs) I thought it would be good for both Christine and Rob to come up here and uh, I'll ask them a few questions about about them (laughs) Uh, you won't forgive me for this I know (laughs) come right here come to the now you've been in this city for oh I'm not sure long time and you were a minister of St. Albans Um, was that your first church in Palmy? It was the first church in Palmerston North, but I had come from Hornby in Christchurch, uh, which is now the, we're deeply moved every time we go back to Hornby, which is now the flagship church of our Presbyterian movement and uh, the legacy and the wonder of what God has done in that church is just awesome. Mm. Wow, Mm. Hornby. In Christchurch. In Christchurch. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Our children used to say, Christchurch and Ornby. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, every once in a while when I talk to a, what, a young girl in her 30s, uh, she would always talk about Christine Yule. So you're quite a legend in the city. <laughs> Tell us, uh, you, you spent many years teaching at Girls High. Yes. Uh, how many years were you there? Um, <laughs> I started properly in 91 and finished in 2002 when we went to Auckland. Ah. Yes, so just yes. taught English. And yes, you taught dean. English. was a dean, yes. So and you were a dean there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I now, remember the day when this, we were rained out. The fire brigade had come to the school. It was a, you know, fire. So we couldn't go back to the school, and it was just pelting. And we came over here. The whole school sort of jammed in here, <laughs> wet as wet, you know. Well, like here? Here, the Hennis... Yes, we came across this from building. school. In this building. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so yeah. every time I come over here, I think, yes. <laughs> and I remember one of our children who was absolutely soaked. 
It was... <laughs> so she, um, I sent her home <laughs> to, to get dry. And, Tell us yeah. about your family. How many kids do you have, Christine? Well, we've got one boy who's in Australia and four daughters who are all in different parts of the North Island. So, so how many grandchildren? Fourteen. Fourteen grandchildren. Yes. <laughs> so that's something to celebrate. <laughs> So virtually every month you have a present to buy. <laughs> Several presents to buy. <laughs> uh, now, so you both retired now, mm-hmm. am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, except you've been doing a bit of relief <laughs> teaching at Girls High. You still oh. teach. Well, if I'm rung up about sort of half past six in the morning, you know, so there's a somebody's sick, and that's but nice. it, it doesn't happen often, so that's so, nice. So how do you both spend your time these days? I know you do teach in MS. Mm. Yes. I've been quite busy uh, giving lectures, lecture series for Emmaus. Uh, I've just finished a series somewhat related to what I spoke to you about last year, um, Sexuality, Romance and Marriage in Christian History, which was very interesting from St. Augustine right through to Francis Schaeffer, uh, Francis and Edith Schaeffer's marriage, that of C.S. Lewis, very interesting. And I'm beginning a, a lecture series in a week's time for Emmaus on the, the Ten Commandments for today. Right. Mm. Christine, one last word from you. So what do you do now these days? Oh, I read. I like reading. Yeah. And I occasionally do housework. And I get the meals. <laughs> and I do the shopping. <laughs> and Very I do Sudokus, you know, things like that. So it's <laughs> yes. great fun. Why not? Why not? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Rob and Christine. Thank you for their witness, uh, their loyalty, their faithfulness to you all these years. Um, Lord, they have kept the faith. We thank you for them. And Lord, thank you for their family, their children, their grandchildren, the heritage that has now passed on. Father, we bless the Yule family to you this day. We pray for health, continual good health for them, and strength to work for you, Father. Pray for Rob this morning. Lord, anoint him as he speaks to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, I feel today is a bit like Coles to Newcastle because I wanted to speak on apologetics, which, of course, you're pastor is the expert at and uh, I was not expecting him to be here when I was invited and chose this topic this morning. So I'm a little nervous uh, in the presence of the expert on this subject. However, let's try to give uh, um, a perspective that will encourage you. I want to speak this morning on reasons to believe. The place of reason in Christian faith. The relationship of faith and reason has often been controversial. As early as the third century, the early church father, Tertullian, asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, the academy with the church? Many Christians today, I find, even professional Christians, Christians working in the professions, and 
many Christian students have a view of faith, of their Christian faith, that is essentially irrational, not well-founded on reason. And I find that many such people put their professional life or their studies in one compartment and their faith in another. An anti-intellectual stance like this, which is very widespread, I find, in the churches today, has a lot of important consequences, which we sometimes don't consider. Unthinking Christians often do things that are mindless or wacky. They hold attitudes that put others off from becoming Christians. They're often ill-equipped to explain the Christian faith to interested inquirers. And most seriously of all, the separation of faith from our professional life means that Christians abandon intellectual and public life to secularists. The Christian community is as much responsible for the abandonment of the public square as the secularist takeover. In actual fact, and I want to explain this to you this morning, there are strong biblical grounds for affirming reason and rationality. Let me just outline some of these quickly. Jesus told us to love God with all our mind as well as with all our heart. And in so doing, he was endorsing that passage from Deuteronomy, which was just read to us, the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith, which affirms that there is only one God and that he is to be loved with every faculty we possess, including our minds. Peter, in the passage that was read from 1 Peter chapter 3, urges us always to be ready to give an answer to unbelievers or to inquirers who might ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have and the faith that we hold. We're to be able to do that in any situation and conversation, in the lecture room, at the coffee break, at work, when asked for an explanation or given an opportunity to share our faith. We're to do it with reason and wisdom. Paul, in Romans 12, you may recall, said that our service of God is not something foolish or irrational, but is our reasonable worship. He uses the word logikos, it's our logical activity because serving God is something that accords with the entire goal and purpose of our lives. It's the logical thing to do. And Paul says that service of God is to be accomplished by the renewing of our minds. But perhaps the supreme place 
in the Bible which affirms the place of reason in our faith is the prologue, the beginning of John's Gospel, where John fascinatingly uses the Stoic or Neoplatonist term logos, word, reason, the underlying purpose for our existence. And this term is applied to the pre-existent Son of God through whom everything was created in the beginning and who enlightens every human being who is born into the world. Here in this passage, John uh, is saying that the logos, the word or reason which informs all things, is the principle which unifies all reality and which renders that reality intelligible to us. Christians can use reason in two ways. The first way is to provide evidence for the truth of Christian faith. The second way is to show shortcomings or inconsistencies in the views of non-believers. The first of these approaches is positive or constructive apologetics. And the second approach we could describe as negative or critical apologetics. The first shows the reasonableness of Christian faith. The second shows the foolishness of unbelief. And we can use reason in both of these ways. I'm going to attempt to do that this morning in this message. Firstly, positively, the reasonableness of faith. Historically, there have been three classical rational arguments for the existence of God and for the truth of the Christian faith. Here this morning, I want to concentrate on the reasonableness, the rational character of these arguments to show how they support faith, how reason um, supports rather than undermines um, our faith, and that our faith is supported by the proper use of reason. The first of these classical arguments is the argument from causality. Every effect requires a cause. Our minds are so constituted that it's rational to deduce causes from consequences and illogical to deny that. In fact, our entire criminal system uh, rests on this assumption. Here's a corpse. Explain how it came to be here. An aircraft crashes on Mount Erebus. Explain how it came to be there. When applied to the existence of the universe, this argument is called the cosmological argument from the Greek word cosmos, universe or world. It moves by deduction from the existence of the universe to the existence of a first cause. Here's a universe, 
explain how it came to be here. I find that atheists are often illogical. They presuppose this law of cause and effect in everyday life, and indeed the whole of science rests on it, but they deny its applicability to the universe as a whole. The second classical argument is the argument from order. It's called the teleological argument from the Greek word telos, which means the end or goal, the purpose uh, behind things. The teleological argument argues from the evidence of design in the universe, the exquisite um, evidence of the fitness of everything, to the existence of an intelligent mind or designer behind it all. I wonder if you've ever thought about this, because contrary to the common assumption of evolutionary theory, chance doesn't explain order. Chance explains randomness or disorder, whereas order always points to a purposeful and intelligent mind as the source of that order. Let me give an illustration of this. During my brief rugby career in my first three years of uh, secondary education, when I attended Wyndham District High School in Southland, now Menzies College, we had a school rugby trip uh, to West Otago to Tapanui. And as the bus pulled uh, approached Tapanui, here on the Blue Mountains and a forest of pine trees was a stunning welcome. Welcome to Tapanui, planted in larch trees in this state forest on the slopes of the Blue Mountains. Now, us schoolboys, even those who had brawn rather than brains, could tell instinctively that an arrangement like that conveys an intentional message. It didn't just happen. Those trees didn't just randomly spring up and grow on the Blue Mountains with that particular configuration. Random events may account for what happened to that pattern subsequently. Branches or perhaps whole trees blown down by northwest gales. Vandals attacking them with chainsaws. Or perhaps forestry gangs legitimately felling them. The randomness can explain for the, dis the, the disorder, but it can't account for how that welcoming message got there in the first place. I was intrigued many years later to read um, an outstanding philosopher, Michael Polanyi, in his book Personal Knowledge, who described a similar experience travelling from England to Wales in the days when 
locomotive crews had their own engine and used to take pride in it, and every railway station had its own station master and took a pride in that. Here on the Welsh border, he spotted a sign in a gravel garden, a pebble garden. Welcome to Wales by British Railways. And he thought, what a thoughtful station master. And he instinctively realised this was put there by a mind and a person who cared. He says chance or randomness only explains the subsequent disarrangement and loss of order. Polanyi says, randomness alone cannot produce a significant pattern. So the argument from order works from all the evidence of the fitness and design of everything to an intelligent mind a loving purpose at work in the universe. The third classical argument is the argument from being. It's called the ontological argument from uh, the Greek word ontos, being. And it argues from the interrelationship between thought and being. This argument was classically expressed by a very intelligent Archbishop of Canterbury back, I think, in the 11th century, Anselm, who defined God as the being beyond which nothing greater can be conceived, nothing greater can be imagined. He argued that the very nature of God is such that no greater being than God can be imagined. If the greatest being could be imagined as not existing, then something even greater could be imagined, a greatest being who truly existed, which by definition is God. I'll quote what Anselm says. He could not be conceived as not existing, which so truly exists that it cannot even be conceived as not existing. Bit of a mental teaser, isn't it? But our minds are so constituted that they can recognize a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. And that supreme being, Anselm said, is the God whom we worship and pray to. Well, there quickly are three classical ways in which reason has been used to support our faith in God and in the existence of God's loving purpose. Now let's look using reason in a more critical manner, at the irrationality of unbelief. 
Reason can also be used to show the inconsistency of those who reject or redefine Christian faith, uh, Christian belief in a transcendent creator God. If, as we've just been exploring, faith is reasonable or rational, then unbelief is essentially foolish or irrational. According to the Bible, denial of God is not a rational thing to do. It's an act of folly. It's fools who say in their hearts, there is no God. Firstly, let me show how naturalism is inconsistent. The test of consistency means a person must be willing to apply the same scrutiny to their own thinking that they apply to the thinking of others. I find that atheists and non-believers often use more stringent tests for truth against the Christian message than they do in relation to their own viewpoint. But it's inconsistent to use arguments against theism, belief in God, that would equally undermine atheism if they were applied to the skeptic's case instead. We have a saying, what's source for the goose is source for the gander. I want to use the illustration of New Zealand's most famous atheist, Sir Lloyd Gehring, Emeritus Professor of Religious Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, and a well-known secularising, alas, Presbyterian minister, who argues in his book, Tomorrow's God, how we create our worlds, that God doesn't objectively exist. The term is simply a human construct, a symbolic expression for all our highest values and our ultimate beliefs, uh, part of the world of meaning that we create for ourselves in the attempt to make sense of life. On this view, God is a bit like the character, a character in a novel. It doesn't objectively exist, but is a product of the author's creative imagination. But what if we were to apply this argument to Lloyd Gehring himself? Professor Gehring doesn't really exist. He's just a literary construct. We have words and writings that purport to come from him, but his, on his own terms, they're merely linguistic and symbolic constructs supported by journalists who want to grasp at reasons for not believing. There's no reason why we should accept that they're the revelation of a real person who exists apart from them and independently of them. Why should we believe in Lloyd Gehring's existence? Isn't he just a symbol of the desire of the secular establishment 
to be rid of the inconvenient notion of a God to whom we should be accountable. Now, gearing is obviously inconsistent. Applying his critique to his own views shows that he, as an author, obviously expects to be treated differently from how he treats God. He's being inconsistent. Otherwise, why pay him any attention at all? A second use of reason to show the inconsistency um, and foibles of unbelievers is that naturalism is self-contradictory. This is the argument brilliantly used um, by C.S. Lewis um, in what he calls the self-contradiction of the naturalist in his famous book on miracles. I could summarize his argument like this. If naturalism is true, naturalism is the view that everything just happens by natural processes without a divine mind behind it. If naturalism is true, the universe as a whole and my thoughts in particular are the product of natural or irrational causes. But if my thoughts are the products of irrational causes, I have no grounds for believing them to be true. Therefore, I have no basis for asserting that naturalism is true. It's self-defeating. Lewis says, all arguments about the validity of thought make a tacit and illegitimate exception in favor of the bit of thinking you are doing at the moment. Thus the Freudian uh, proves that all thoughts are merely psychological complexes, except the thoughts which constitute the proof itself. The Marxist proves that all thoughts result from class conditioning, except the thought that he is thinking while he says this. Naturalism has no grounds for proving itself to be true. It's self-contradictory. And thirdly, and tellingly, naturalism lacks a basis for moral outrage. This is a little surprising because it's often thought that the strongest argument against our Christian belief has been the argument from evil. How could an all-powerful and all-loving God allow the continued existence of evil and injustice in a world for which he is responsible. And atheists often churn out this argument, despite the fact that the central tenet of our Christian faith 
and of the Christian message is that God so loved this world, caught in the grip of evil, that he gave his only son to enter it, to experience our suffering, to die a victim of evil and injustice on the cross, precisely in order to overcome the evil and injustice that he's alleged to be indifferent to. Elvin Plantinga is perhaps the foremost Protestant philosopher in the world today. Um, He lectures at the University of Notre Dame, and he points out a flaw in this anti-theistic argument from evil. He says the existence of evil, particularly of appalling examples of cruelty and wickedness, like that displayed by Hitler, by Stalin, by Pol Pot in the killing fields, and even by random acts like shooting down an airliner. The moral outrage that we instinctively feel against this evil, he says, can equally be viewed as contradicting naturalism and providing evidence for theism. This is what Palantinga says. Could there really be such a thing as horrifying wickedness if naturalism were true? I don't see how, he says. A naturalistic way of looking at the world has no place for general, genuine moral obligation of any sort. A fortiori, then, it has no place for such a category as horrifying wickedness. There can be such a thing only if there is a rational way rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. But naturalism cannot make room for that kind of normativity. That requires a divine lawgiver, one whose very nature is to abhor wickedness. Only a truly naturalistic view, on a truly naturalistic view of reality, moral obligation doesn't exist, and such wickedness would simply have to be accepted without dissent or protest. Our outrage at wickedness, even the atheists' outrage at wickedness, is an indication that we live in a moral universe with a moral lawgiver behind it. So let's conclude and pull these two strands together. Cumulatively, these two lines of rational evidence, one positive, the evidence for our faith, the other negative, critiquing the inconsistencies of naturalism, when we weigh these thoughtfully and dispassionately, they point to the irrationality of atheism and the reasonableness of theism. And so belief in God is supported, not undermined, by the proper use of reason, and indeed, I would argue, 
by the very structure of our thinking, of reason itself. The great thinker Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. That our minds are congruent with the universe and can penetrate and understand it. And the universe allows itself, is so structured in a rational way that it can be understood. And so it's not rational people, but fools who say in their hearts, there is no God. And Christians have every basis and ground for using their minds to the glory of God and to articulate our faith and share it with others. Let's pray that we would all be encouraged to do just that. We thank you, God, that your mind and purpose underlies all things and our very existence. That you have given us a share in understanding with our own minds able to honour and glorify you and gain insights into the wonder of what you have made. We pray that you'd encourage us all as the Apostle Peter exhorted us to be ready at any time and on any occasion to give an account of the hope that is in us. Help us, Lord, to extend ourselves by study, to show ourselves approved to you. Workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who don't stutter and stumble when people ask us questions, but can give good account not only of ourselves, but of our faith and of you, our God. May we live our lives to your glory. Those of us, Lord, who are studying at school, college or university, help us to do so with energy and dedication. Those of us serving you, Lord, in our public life, our daily life and professional activity, help us to study to show ourselves approved and to extend our insights in the subjects that you've given us to explore. May, Lord, our whole lives, waking or resting, as the book of Deuteronomy encourages us, be to your glory and honour. For you alone are God, worthy of the highest praise. Fill our minds with your spirit and give us joy as we dedicate ourselves to making you known, to exploring your works, and to glorifying you in our thinking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.